journalist and editor of Unlimited Hangout at unlimitedhangout.com. Welcome to a panel called Interrogating Cold War 2.0, brought to you by Unlimited Hangout and Off Guardian. Today's panel will focus on the growing East-West divide, its implications for the economic future of the world, its impact on globalism, and how it relates to the ongoing dramatic socioeconomic policy shifts that are often collectively referred to as the Great Reset. In addition, we will be exploring the role of the West in the current rise of China and Russia, whether Russia and China are exercising a more moral foreign policy than their counterparts in NATO, and whether we should pick a side of this dichotomy. And without further ado, here are our panelists for today. We have Patrick Wood. Patrick is a financial analyst, writer, and speaker, as well as the author of Technocracy Rising, the Trojan Horse of Global Transformation. And he's also co-author of Trilaterals Over Washington with Anthony Sutton about the Trilateral Commission. He is also the editor-in-chief of the website technocracy.news. Next, we have Ian Davis. Ian is an independent investigative journalist, blogger, and author from Portsmouth in the United Kingdom. He is a contributor to UK Column and also Unlimited Hangout. His work is often featured by Off Guardian, The Corbett Report, and Zero Hedge, among others. He also has his own website, In This Together, which you can find at in-this-together.com. We have Kit Knightley. Kit is a UK-based independent journalist, and he is editor of Off Guardian, which you can find at off-guardian.org. And last but not least, we have Catherine Austin Fitz. Catherine is the president of Solari Inc., which publishes the Solari Report at solari.com. And she is also a managing member of Solari Investment Advisory Services. Prior to Solari, she held top positions at the Wall Street Investment Bank, Dylan Reed & Co., and was also Assistant Secretary of Housing and the Federal Housing Commissioner for the Department of Housing and Urban Development. So uh, welcome, everyone. Nice to have you here. Good to be here. Hi. Always fun. <laughs> all right. So let's start with a question on the East-West divide. Uh, what do you all see as the nature of the East-West divide? Is it ideological, political, a mix of the two, or merely superficial? Uh, why don't we start with you, Catherine, since you are next to me <laughs> on the fifth. So from an investment position, if you, if you look at the world from a central investment position, it looks to me the people who have been financing the West are the same as are financing the East. At the same time, there are tremendous struggles, um, one of which is that at the end of world, sort of the end of the Cold War, the, uh, the G7 nations wanted to exercise uh, essentially a unipolar model and extend the unipolar model globally, whereas the economies that were growing fast, thanks to Western investment, wanted to um, maintain national sovereignty outside of control through essentially increasingly the financial system and financial sanctions. So I think on one hand at the very top, you have, um, you know, you, you have a central investment model that's financing both sides. At the same time, you have real significant differences both in the economic model and, and whether or not national sovereignty will be permitted. The G7 nations clearly want a world without national sovereignty and the so-called BRIC nations want um, significantly more national sovereignty and the way they want to run that national sovereignty is more with government entities than with banks and corporations. So there are very significant differences as well. All right, anyone else want to add to that or uh, uh, any takers? Ian? Mm -hmm. 
Any any yeah. thoughts on on the question or or what Catherine said about um the nature of the east west divide? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it very much depends upon from whose perspective you're considering that that east west divide. I think there are some people probably within the, for example, the military infrastructures on both sides of that equation that do see a very real uh, confrontation or a very a very real divide. But then, as Catherine was saying, if we look at it from a a global financing perspective that divides less obvious uh, and then you know and i think also it's true to say that if we we talk about the people there's there's definitely a, a different mindset on either side of that divide but if we look at it politically i think that divide becomes less clear um i think that there is um I, I agree with i agree with catherine that there's this this idea of a unipolar model versus a multipolar model for want of a better expression but for my my perspective um i don't see a great distinction between the two i think national sovereignty um is a mechanism by which governments you know, certainly if you're looking at, at Russia and um, China is is a way of kind of introducing their population to a new kind of governance, which I believe is technocracy um, in both Russia and China. And I think, you know, we might go on to discuss why. Um, and I, I think that they are using that for the for for reasons of of firstly kind of asserting their dominant role over a global structure and i think we are going to be looking at a global structure but also i think there is we need to remember as well that it is useful sometimes to have what appear to be opposing opposing forces that game has been played for a long time we often talk about divide and rule and there's a reason for that it works in a in a general sense so if you want to control your populations having a different a different approach to what is essentially the same way of controlling your population i think that there's that as well oh uh patrick you're muted, yeah I'll, I'll say that your, your your thought about control is, is absolutely right <clears throat> the the original uh, technocracy group in the 1930s uh, led with the idea that technocracy uh, is the science of social engineering. That was part and parcel of their philosophy, their ideology. <clears throat> and economic control required social control. And we see that everywhere uh, that we have this technocratic uh, meme impressed, we see that coming out social control yields or is is lord over economic control um china is really big on this europe's really big on this uh the united states is getting worse and worse every day uh or with social control propaganda and so on being used as tools and um you know this this kind of uh it, since it's a global in nature at this point it, it it's kind of a tell that this is really the agenda not not just well this country made a mistake that country has you know too many democrats left wingers whatever too much woke wokeness um no this seems to be it's a global problem from the top down right now and it's the same kind of techniques are being used everywhere 
Can I, uh, can I, Patrick, can I ask you a question? Because it looks to me like everyone's fully on board for technocracy, but Russia and China prefer their technocracy to have more of their national government as the middle manager for the technocracy. But they also prefer to run more of the technocracy with government than with corporations and banks. So it's absolutely technocracy, but the details of the implementation are somewhat different. Yeah. Does it look that way to you? Well, it, it does. And I'll say for decades, um, the, the people who are pushing technocracy have been content to stay behind the scenes, behind the political right. Uh, right. front. And we, we, we saw this in, in America starting way back with the Carter administration all the way going forward to today, that um, this technocrat types have, uh, like the old uh, World War II movie, Run Silent, Run Deep, they, they have been there the whole time. They have been executing their strategy the whole time. And they've been, in many cases, they've been using the government to do it. A good example of that, I think, is the takeover of the American government by members of the Trilateral Commission during the Carter administration. You had at one time 30% of the membership of the American side of the, of the Trilateral Commission in top positions like cabinet positions in Carter's administration. And they said back then, we're not political, we don't want, we're not interested in political takeover. And it sure looked that way and we, we made that charge, but we finally figured, started to figure out after 20 years went by what really happened. They weren't interested in the political structure right. of America at all. What they wanted was control over the economic engine of the world. Right. And they got that through appointing presidents of the World Bank, for instance, which eight, what, six out of nine were members of the Trilateral Commission. Nine out of 12 of the U.S. trade representatives thereafter were members of the Trilateral Commission. And they took over the economic, the, the entire economic structure uh, moving forward to the whole planet. And now they've exercised this. You know, we see their influence everywhere, but um, they weren't really after the polit They were using the political system, let me put it that way, to get what they wanted, which was economic control. Um, for people watching who may not know, can you just briefly explain what the Trilateral Commission is? Uh, it's two co-founders. Uh, just a little background, maybe. Sure. Founded in 1973 by David Rockefeller and Zbigniew Brzezinski. Rockefeller is the money man. Uh, Chase Bank oil interest, uh, monopoly interest. Uh, and then you had uh, Brzezinski, a professor of political science at Columbia University. Brzezinski caught his uh, Rockefeller's eye with his book that he wrote at Columbia called Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. And uh, Rockefeller saw that as a way to get increasing control over resources. Uh, because I think from a from just a pure mathematical point of view, even back then, he saw that there would be an end one day in the future to the existing monetary system. That was back when gold had been just decoupled from the dollar. The world was now completely fiat currency. Uh, Rockefeller was not stupid. And from his money, monetary analysis point of view, there would be a time someday in the future, I think that day's probably come now, where the, the financial system would be completely kaput. And the only answer to that, in his mind, was to uh, take over resources directly. In other words, not just use the money to, to you know, in the bank to control things, but to get your way, but actually go after control over resources directly. 
And I think this is what we've seen ever since, honestly. That's what Agenda 21 was all about, Agenda 2030, the United Nations, sustainable development, et cetera, et cetera. It's been about accumulation and consolidation of resources on a planetary basis. Okay. Uh, Kit, do you have anything you um, uh, want to add yeah. in here? or? Yeah, I would say, returning back to the original question on the nature of the split, I mean, obviously, you can go that ideological, theoretically, everyone's a free market capitalist now in one way to a certain degree or another. I would put it in software terms. Um, you roll out a new program, you have like, here's our new alpha tested program. And that was, we're all gonna be friends. That was tried in COVID, you see. Um, there was a, an end to like geopolitical like, differences, even ISIS stopped doing terrorism because of the pandemic was gonna make everybody friendly. And then you have that slowly wearing off after two years and a return to what in software terms you call a stable build. Everybody understood the Cold War, so we'll just we'll just do that again. Only it's somewhat forced this time. I would say the difference between Russia and China saying it's about sovereignty and us talking about open world, open borders stuff. I would say that's largely a superficial difference designed to appeal to a market base. You know, if you're going to sell apples in Rome you say the Pope loves apples. And if you're going to sell them in Riyadh, you say Allah loves apples. But they're the same apples either way. All right. So um, we can move on to another question. Um, so um, what has the West's role in the economies of Russia and China uh, been, uh, or sorry, um, what has been the West's role in the economies of Russia and China over the past several decades? And what impact has this had on the rise of Eurasia? Anyone interested in starting? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, go you ahead. want to go, Pat? I, I want to hear you first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think the investment has been extraordinary in, the, in both China and Russia, although in very different ways. So we saw mm -hmm. a transfer both of capital, of intellectual capital, and extraordinary even gifting of technology mm -hmm. to China from the mid-90s on. Um, and in, in many respects, that still continues. So there is a huge bet being made on China, and I would not describe it so much as, um, well, in, in a sense, you can say it's coming from the West, but I think if you look at the people who operate the allocation of capital globally, it's coming from the very top, and, and it's not stopping. Um, not that there haven't been changes in evolution. So, so that's a, the huge bet on China and Asia. Russia was clearly essentially raped at the end of the Cold War. And um, I think Russia has come back faster than was expected. But in the process, there was a great effort to take ownership positions and control of investment positions in Russia. And through that, there was some investment, but I would say much less than China. Um, interestingly enough, the sanctions have afforded enormous investment in Russia and transfer of assets. If you look at the transfer of assets that is happening now as a result of the sanctions, you know, my serious question is this really just a transfer of significant wealth and assets to Russia, you know, as a, you know, under the pretext of sanctions. Um, either way, the tension economically, uh, interestingly enough, has been the same tension you've seen domestically in many countries. And that is we have a global economy where capital is using force to extract returns that it doesn't deserve 
at the expense of laborers or commodity producers. And so we have throughout the, the world, and certainly India, China, Russia, the BRIC nations, they're tired of extraction of wealth through financial speculation and financial currency debasement. And at some point, if an economy doesn't return capital to the people who produce the wealth, you're going to get real schisms. And, and we are watching in the G7 nations the rise of an elite. And you know this better than any, Whitney. We're all waiting for your book that proves it once again. <laughs> um, you know, we have a criminal syndicate. You know, we're dealing with Spectre. If you ever watch the James Bond movie, Spectre is extracting too much of the wealth. And frankly, the populations in the G7 nations and around the world are sick of it. And, and those who still have enough command of military and, and national resources can do something about it. So I think that this is a revolution of the productive against the unproductive. And interestingly enough, the guys who run the global capital in this, in this respect are supporting the productive. It's what it looks like to me. Yeah. All right. Uh, do you want to go next, Patrick? Yeah, I'll, I'll just add on. I'll, I'll add to that. Uh, Tony Sutton, Anthony Sutton wrote <clears throat> two books. One that that underscore this, of course, his his series at Stanford University on the transfer of technology from the, the West to the East are are epic and legendary at this point. Um, you can find, <laughs> maybe find them on the internet for a thousand dollars a volume, but they're very rare. Um, but he he nailed it six ways to Sunday back then. What had happened? He ended up writing. Um, uh, Bolshevik, or excuse me, Wall Street and the Rise of Hitler. He wrote Bolshe uh, Wall Street and the Rise of Russia, or whatever. I forget exactly the title, but but he had nailed this back then. If if he were alive today, my guess is he'd probably be writing a book, uh, Wall Street and the Rise of X, you know, whatever the, the Great Reset is. Um, but um, this has been. Uh, legendary back through the going all the way back to world war one the, the, the west is, has has financed the wall street has financed most of the conflicts in the world that means that they've been on both sides and the their activities in russia even in the ussr were also legendary people like armin hammer for instance flew back and forth without passports so did david rockefeller um and and they could go anywhere in russia do anything they wanted to do and they never got any trouble anybody else mere people like us would probably get arrested and thrown into the gulag um china has been the same way <clears throat> when when china uh came back onto the world stage um my my mind goes back to 1976 when zabigna brzezinski wined and dined uh deng xiaoping in washington um that was after Kissinger had uh, Henry Kissinger had already gone to China for uh, on an illegal trip, uh, made a lot of people really mad back then. But it was an illegal trip that that um, Nixon sent him on to reestablish relationships with China, which looked a lot like North Korea at the time. It was a train wreck. They had no economic system. They they, they tripped over themselves to spin down into the in a cesspool. Deng Xiaoping came to Washington and smiled and got wined and dined by Brzezinski. Brzezinski later became widely hailed in the history books as being the architect of bringing China back into the world stage. So my question became, as I studied the Trilateral Commission and Brzezinski, who was a brilliant strategist, evil maybe, but brilliant. Uh, when China came onto the world stage, did Brzezinski and crew teach them free market economics and capitalism? 
or did they teach them the principles of technocracy? I think the evidence now, looking backwards, clearly says they were taught the elements of technocracy, not free market economics. We see that expressed even to the point where Time Magazine wrote a, a major article, in, I think around 2000, that said point blank, China's the technocracy now, and they gave reasons for it in context to the original technocracy movement back in the 1970s, uh, 1930s. So the, by the insiders, this has been recognized that China became a technocracy. But what we found out to confirm that, it was a fact we found out back then, but it meant something more to me later. By the time Brzezinski was talking to Deng Xiaoping in, in, in Washington, um, the largest private engineering company in the world, Bechtel Engineering, which is based in the Bay Area, San Francisco area, um, was chaired by a guy named Casper um, Weinberger. Casper Weinberger was one of those founding members of the Trilateral Commission. Very influential globally because they had the, it was the largest engineering company, private engineering company, maybe one of the largest engineering companies, period, in the world. By the time Deng Xiaoping had come to Washington, Bechtel Engineering had already completed 18 major infrastructure projects in China, all illegal. In other words, it was, it was illegal to do business with China back in that day. So that, but they were private. And so they just, Hey, you know, sail their own ship over there with their equipment to go do it. They just went and did it. 18 major infrastructure projects. You say, well, what's that? That means, okay, they're connecting roads, they're building dams or, you know, power plants and stuff like that um, to get ready for the economic boom that was going to take place in China. They engineered this from the get-go. Yeah. And the money that flowed into China initially was mostly connected with the Trilateral Commission, uh, you know, group of companies that were represented in the Trilateral Commission at the expense of other companies in America that would gladly have done business, but they were frozen out because they weren't part of the club. We documented this now. So, you know, you, you look back at this whole thing and say, well, how did China get to where it is today? Wall Street, people in the Trilateral Commission, those companies, whatever, that went over and did business, they opened up China. China never had the capacity to do any of that stuff. They didn't know how to build a dam. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't build roads or anything else, bridges and stuff that, that companies like Bechtel, Bechtel probably looked like a bunch of magicians to these people at the time. So I look back at this, I see the same kind of construction taking place in China that took place in, in, the, in communist Russia at one point in time by the West by Western money. They actually enabled those institutions to stay in business for as long as they did. And even when they died, they were still in control because they were like the run silent, run deep type of a submarine. They just, they said, we still got control. Whether Whatever happens to your political system, we're still in charge of everything. And here we are today, birds of a feather flock together. So you see people in, in, in Silicon Valley, they love China. They absolutely love China because there's technocrats in China. There's technocrats in Silicon Valley say, hey, we're brothers, man. We're, we're across the sea, but we're all brothers here. And they can look at a lot of people in Europe and say the same thing. You know, we're all brothers. We can get along. But the political establishment, they look down their nose at it. They say, ah, oh, fooey. You know, we don't, we don't care about the political establishment. We're, we're doing the real work here. So nothing is new. Uh, to that effect about Silicon Valley, there was a recent podcast with the former head of uh, Google, Eric Schmidt, basically uh, praising uh, China's approach to all of this. And he's he's talking with people like H.R. McMaster and 
and and some big guys and he's he's basically saying um we need to know what they're doing because they have ai under control and we don't uh, unsurprisingly perhaps he co-wrote his new book on ai with henry kissinger yes um yeah yes. sounds he is, sounds he like is. a fun way to spend your time reading well, that book <laughs> <laughs> eric schmidt is a is a recent member of the trilateral commission he's been a member for several years now he was inducted into the trilateral commission it still has the same makeup and same goals it had back in the 70s and now, as it appears, you mentioned his book with Henry Kissinger. Um, Eric Schmidt apparently is the heir apparent to Henry Kissinger. The and New York Kissinger, Times has said that. I've seen that around. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Kissinger continues to affirm Eric Schmidt as kind of being the intellectual <laughs> thought leader now for what's coming. And it's like, oh, my gosh. So you, you, you see these people's influence continuing today with things like Eric Schmidt. Eric Schmidt's one of the most dangerous people on the planet, as far as I'm concerned. So I'd not disagree you, with that. Mm -hmm. I have to tell you, Patrick, we did something new this quarter. We were getting so many stories of unbelievably bizarre events that we created a section called Bizarro World so that those stories would not detract from you understanding the things you needed to know going through the, you know, sort of the ma major areas of importance. So now that you've told me that I'm going to put that, I'm going to find a story about that. I'm going to put it in bizarre world because the idea of Eric Schmidt being the next Henry Kissinger really speaks to how bizarre this is. <laughs> I agree. You can't make us up. <laughs> right, you couldn't. If you brought me this as a script, I would say this won't play in New Haven. <laughs> um, Ian Kit, anything uh, to add um, I mean, about I, the? I, I don't want to get into this pattern of listening intently to some very in-depth historical analysis and just summing it up with something glib. But I'm afraid that's what about what's about to happen. Go for it, Kit. Go. Um, the um. Basically, I suppose the original question is slightly flawed. You say, how much role did the West play in the rise of the East? But really, it would better phrase as how much of a role did people who temporarily call the West home play in the rise of the East? Wall Street money. You know, these aren't people that actually have a national loyalty. Yeah. And I suppose the extension of the question in the end is, at what point do they simply up sticks and, and move and leave America to, to fester? Because I think that will happen at some point. Right. Ian, any thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with what's been said very much so far. Um, I mean, I, I liken it to, you know, a, a scorpion on the back of a frog. So, you know, the uh, the idea that, you know, the, the frog's dead, the Western, the Western frog is dead or is drowning, you know, and they and for a long time they've been talking about um, uh, creating a new frog. So, the, 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 you know, it's... If I looked at it as through foreign direct investment, the foreign direct investment that went from the West to China in, in particular, um, because obviously that comes with other things attached, you know, including an exchange of employees, uh, uh, technological transfers and everything like that. And the foreign direct investment growth in the from the sort of early 90s to the well, and to the late 90s and to now or up to the pandemic i mean that's another interesting thing i mean while the world shut down in um you know in response to what i call the pseudo pandemic um fdi went up in china in 2020 it went up by four percent i mean it's it's if that doesn't show you a commitment 
to your new frog. Um, you know, and I think I think that that I mean one of the things that, I, that stands out for me was was uh, it was a speech that Jack when um, Tencent were going to launch their or, or rather the parent company of Tencent were going to launch their IPO. Jack Ma, uh, the head of Tencent and the, the head of um, I can't remember the, the parent company name. Ali, that, that's it. Yeah. He gave he gave a speech to gathered bankers in Beijing, and following that speech, he disappeared for three months. Now that speech was reported in the Western media as being uh, his criticism of um, Xi Jinping's uh, banking reforms. But if you, but a lot of a couple of Chinese journalists managed to get out a translation. Now I'm relying, obviously, I'm relying on the translation of that. But reading that, um, he didn't really make any major criticisms of uh, Xi Jinping's banking reforms. He criticised what he called the old money from the West. And at one at one point, he actually said, "Why do we need them?" <laughs> at which at which point at which point he this is one of the the you know obviously one of the most well known billionaires in the world just vanished. And and it was reported. It was reported. I'm sure he was being re-educated somewhere. It was it was reported in the West that that was because he criticised Xi Jinping, but it wasn't. He was criticising the Western banking elite, and then he vanished. So so it seems clear to me that that's if we look at FDI that that the West has built up China now. Less so, obviously, they took a different tack, as Catherine said, in Russia. They just try to steal all its assets. Just, I mean, there's no, you know, you know, they did that. I mean, the oligarchs were 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 ripping it off with through countries like, you know, companies like Pimico, with the, which with the central bank was involved in ripping it off. So, so you know, it's um, but so that kind of shows you something as well about the structure of, you know, for example, the position that, and I would suggest the sovereignty of central banks. Because there's no doubt that the central bank of Russia was involved in ripping off the country, right? So, criminally involved in ripping off the country. Now that has been replaced subsequently with a what I would suggest is a new oligarchy, who, as Catherine said, is much more closely aligned to the government. I mean, there's that famous meeting where in 2009, I think, when Putin allegedly said, "You know, this is the way it's going to be." you toe the line and, you know, you'll still be able to do business. But there are still, through things like the St. Petersburg Economic, uh, International Economic Forum, we see the same kind of nexus between private capital and state capital. And I, and I think what, what the, the difference is, perhaps, that we, that we see in Russia is that the, um, there's, there's the, the political side of that equation if you like has said we have political control we we set the political environment we set the policy environment but providing that everything goes along we can do business because there are a lot of big companies like usm and people like that in in russia and a lot of new billionaires who by the way did really well out of the pseudo pandemic they made their their fortunes rose faster than anywhere so there is this same kind of thing, which I would call the public-private partnership, that 
And in, and in one sense, I would suggest in Russia, that has reached its zenith. That is where the state and the corporations are as one. It is, it is, you know, there is no division between them because there is a political and corporate alignment. So, 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 but it's as, you know, as, as Patrick was saying earlier, it's the, it's the same game. So having destroyed the Western economic model, the debt-based system, where what's the debt debt to GDP ratio in the East compared to the West? Like 10 to 15, 20%. So that is ripe for expansion. So they built it up, they've jumped off their dead frog, and now they're jumping onto a new one. Right. And I I would say a lot of the debt in the West, because if you look at what happened in the United States, they bubbled the economy and sucked that money and reinvested it in China. So so the debt that is now hanging in the West, you know, the Westerners will be hung with it, the citizens will be hung with it, but but the investment will be credited. You know, that money went into the investment in China and somebody else has their name on it, not the people who are liable for the debt. Yeah. Um yeah. I would say like the interesting point of difference to study is Russia because into the late 90s with the resignation of Boris Yeltsin, Russia was, I would say, almost deliberately humiliated. There, there was, I don't think, like if you chart China, the rise of China has been pretty steady and it's never been as violently opposed as the Soviet Union was and as even like newly capitalist Russia was. And I think that process was intended to continue and the unaccounted for factor was the president, president yeah, was President Vladimir Putin. I didn't think they understood him as a person when he came into power. I thought he, they expected him to carry on doing what Yeltsin did. And there is a, I would say a genuine, a more genuine conflict with Putin's Russia up until relatively recently where they decided to stop trying to crush Russia again and invite them to the same table that already invited China to. And I think that has, that is, has, basically created the Eurasian bloc that was originally going to be simply the rise of China. And Russia was meant to be, I mean, they still talk about splitting Russia into tiny republics and stuff as a sort of, that was a plan, I think a genuine one, but I don't think it is anymore. Well, if I can contribute something here, uh, I've been doing a lot of research on this uh, for uh, my, my upcoming book. And it seems to me that a lot of what was going on um, with Russia uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union was to install a very particular oligarchy with very particular links to, um, uh, I guess, Russian organized crime and uh, uh, Israel and, um, you know, allied um, elites um, in, in the West. And um, it, I think I, I, it is worth uh, noting sort of um, uh, people like Mark Rich, for example, and uh, people that were sort of um, associated in some ways with him and Robert Maxwell and that whole network uh, were really involved in the the capital flight and the privatization of assets. Um, and actually, his uh, his son Kevin, Kevin Maxwell also involved to an extent in this um, as well. And it, 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 if you look at, I don't want to give a, too much away because I have. Uh, a book that's coming out, but uh, there, there is a lot to be said about the different types of, you know, the oligarchs, the Russian oligarchs that uh, were sort of uh, uh, chosen more or less uh, during this period and became, you know, the people in control of the resources. 
And like, like Patrick was saying earlier about the trilateral commission, if you have the resources, you know, that's the real, uh, that's the real power. And there's a lot of, um, it's very interesting to look at uh, their particular um, associations. And at the same time with the rise of China, you have people, um, uh, Israel, for example, playing a, a major role in technology transfer as it relates to uh, China. Uh, for example, you're the, like the CIA director in 1993 uh, telling Congress that Israel had been doing this for like over a decade, uh, military technology that was um, had been given to them by the West, but was sort of supposed to be blocked uh, by the West to uh, uh, from being given to China. Israel was covertly doing this uh, for a very long time, and it got a lot more extensive uh, through the Clinton administration, uh, which is the Clinton administration's involvement in that is truly um mind-boggling um right. for people that are that are familiar um and um <clears throat> but one of the early people that was involved i mean the israel's uh, role in passing this technology to china began in 1979 uh intimately involved there is uh, one of the richest men in israel named saul eisenberg uh, who was had a very close relationship with israeli intelligence and also um a rather cozy relationship uh, with Robert Maxwell. And it, you know, if you look at Robert Maxwell's like career, as I've had to do for this book, technology transfer uh, to the former Soviet Union and also, uh, you know, through his successors uh, to China, in a sense, is really mind boggling uh, to a significant degree. So that's all I really sort of wanted to add there is that Israel has played a, a major role in that. But, you know, it, it's not necessarily overtly the government. It's some of these uh, networks that tend to be transnational in scope and involving people that are sort of in, in this web of organized crime intelligence that um, I cover uh, extensively in, in my upcoming book. But I don't want to, you know, I'm supposed to be hosting this. So <laughs> uh, can I you know, ask a question? Mm -hmm. The BRICS have their 2022 summit right now. So as we're meeting, they're meeting. And they're talking about putting together a new reserve currency together. Now, they were working on that in 2019 before the G7 bankers voted the going direct reset. And the reset kind of threw that in the hopper uh, while the world, you know, did the COVID, whatever that was. So, so they're now back at the table looking at doing a five currency basket. And they're doing it after a period since the sanctions started where the Russian ruble is significantly outperforming the U.S. dollar. And the U.S. dollar index is up and performing very well, but the, the ruble is performing even better. So I'm very curious what the other, other members of the panel think about what, what's going to happen with that and where they think it's going to go. Do they think it will be successful? What does it mean? Okay. Uh, well, we can move to that. I was going to talk um, or ask first about uh, Ukraine and then segue from sanctions. To, oh, let's go to, to that. Yeah, let's uh, go to Ukraine. Let's go to Ukraine. Well, well, make sure to bring that up um, when okay. once it uh, once we get there, uh, if that's okay. <laughs> yep. Alrighty. So, turning to the situation in Ukraine, uh, why did this war come about, and for what purpose? Uh, I'll start with uh, Ian there, uh, since you did a, a pretty in-depth series on it. Um, though you don't have to give an in-depth answer if you don't wish to. <laughs> no, I, I, I haven't got a clue. That's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay. I mean, clearly, clearly there are um, genuine, genuine military concerns for um, that Russia can Russia can say, yeah particularly the expansionism, NATO expansionism, and particularly the 
I, I think they've overplayed, and I, I don't, you know, I think Putin has very much over, and you know, the the, the Russian clique that that he he represents have very much overplayed the Nazi element in um, Ukraine. Although um, they certainly have got the government at a disadvantage, and that's due to going back to something I think it was Kit mentioned earlier, going all the way back to the post-war period, where. Um, you know, the CIA and MI6 were working with the Banderites to destabilize, you know, the Ukrainian Soviet Republic. So, you know, yeah, yeah. The, 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 so, you know, it was um, so that that has definitely been a, a concern for Russia. If you've got, you know, a, a, a political, you know, and obviously there was a 2014 coup, which was a coup. I mean, it was a CIA-backed coup. I mean, there's no two ways about that. So, and then you've got the DPR and the LPR, and you've got a long war that's been going on there. So what I'm trying to say is that from a Russian perspective, you know, if you were looking at it from a, a cold-hearted military and defence and security analysis point of view, you can see that Russia's point. However, it is set within this massive thing that we are talking about now, this global transition of power. Now, that global transition of power has been going, has been talked about at length for decades, for decades. You could go back all the way back to the 1970s to see people talking about it. We can, you know, even looking at things like George Soros in, you know, talk, gave that interview to the Financial Times saying China will be the engine of the world. The, 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 the economic engine of the world. I mean, now we're seeing things like, you know, recently Russia has overtaken Saudi Arabia as China's main oil supplier. You know, prior to prior to it, we saw Russia and China, you know, Putin and Xi Jinping's joint statement about how there would be no limit to their cooperation. So although it's, and this is why I'm saying I don't know, because although there are genuine military reasons why you might say, yeah, I can understand why Russia had to act, it's, it just fits so perfectly with the plans that have been long laid and also the fact that, you know, the sanctions themselves are delivering everything that, the, the you know, quote, unquote, the Great Reset is all about. You know, so it's it's... It's difficult. I haven't put my finger on it yet, is the answer. But I mean, you know, I think that it's a complex issue. Yeah, well, it um, definitely is complex. That's for sure. I would actually yeah. go a little bit further than that and say, I'm not sure there are military reasons to justify it. There are political statements that claim to justify it. But strategically, it doesn't actually make any sense. If you're worried about NATO expansionism, this is almost literally the worst thing they could possibly have done. They've already driven Finland and maybe Sweden into reconsidering joining NATO. Um, and these are places that just need an excuse. Uh, even if they're successful in getting all the way to Kiev and cutting Ukraine in half and keeping the bit with the Russians in, which is apparently what their plan is, Ukraine still exists. It's just smaller and will definitely join NATO because you just got rid of all the people who didn't want to. Um, all the people that will wanted to keep Ukraine out of NATO and I'll be in Russia and Ukraine will just be a smaller country that will definitely join NATO. So I'm not sure strategically it makes any sense. I mean, the, the humanitarian war claim to protect people of Donbass also doesn't really make much sense because if they were going to do that, they could have done it eight years ago. 
So I think the question mark here really is what changed to the Russian way of thinking about this and why? Hmm. Because it was not at all beneficial to them to well, invade Ukraine you, for a long time. If you look at the results, what you've done is you've shifted, you've dramatically shifted energy to the east, right? And you have dramatically weakened Europe and the euro, which is the number one competitor to the dollar for reserve currency status. That's what you've achieved. And you've put the G8 now or the, the BRICS in a position where they can do a new serious reserve currency. And you've bestowed through the sanctions enormous assets. Corporate assets have just been basically taken by the Russians thanks to your actions. So I would say, you know, if, if you look at what the West is doing with the sanctions and with this situation, they are significantly increasing the power and wealth of the East. Yes, yeah. I think I think you're onto something. They, they have a they have the perfect excuse, you know. They've tried every which way to jam their populations. They've tried health crisis, they've tried climate change, but this is now working. Yeah, I would <clears throat> agree, but I'm not sure how much that could be relied upon to be the result. Of, um, they can't know exactly what sanctions the EU and the US will put on them or how. And the I mean, oh, talking I about the sanctions is interesting because the, the sanctions are, have had an almost suicidal effect, especially on Europe. Europe has fared worse from their own sanctions than Russia has in some ways. And I don't think they can, they could have predicted that from the outset. Yeah. Oh, I do. I, th I think if you look at the G7 leadership, I mean, the people who are really running the, the capital allocation, I think they... There's no way Russia could be doing what they're doing successfully without support from the West. Yeah. It's not possible. So, but I do think the people who allocate capital globally knew that this would advantage um, manufacturing and production in the East and disadvantage and, and permit the radical lowering of the economic footprint of the population in the G7. Uh, they could not know that. Yeah, I, I feel like yeah, we're we're talking past each other slightly. I'm I'm saying that Russia couldn't wouldn't possibly have launched that particular operation without a certain amount of foreknowledge of cooperation with regards to how the economic situation will play out. Yeah, right. Can I, I think, they, sorry, Patrick, you do. Oh well, I was just going to say that I I look at this like um like uh how the how the circus people spin plates on a stick. <laughs> And you know they try and get you know one on their nose, one on their hand, and whatever shoulder, and you know wait, wait. And everybody's amazed because eventually one plate goes flying off. If you look at the plates that are that are spinning right now, because of the war, you have an energy crisis all of a sudden. This is huge globally, not just it is not just in there. It's globally. You have a financial crisis. This directly related, I think, to to the disruption of energy and you know what's going on with with Putin demanding rubles, et cetera. It's throwing the entire monetary system up in the air. Then you have the agricultural crisis, which is global. It's not local, even though Ukraine is going to have probably the, one of the worst harvests it's had in decades. Um, 
It's not going to be able to feed Europe like it used to. But <clears throat> all three of these plates that are spinning right now are near and dear to the techni technocracy's heart. Near and dear. Mm. And uh, you look at Russia now, how the power has shifted. Russia's the largest exporter of wheat in the world. They've got the food. Russia has the energy, too. And right now, it has the balance of power tipping towards it as far as the ruble's concerned, even though I, I think we all probably agree that the paper currencies of the world are all going to go up at the same time when they finally blow. They're all going to burn, not just this one or that one being higher or lower or whatever. They're all going to burn in the end. And they're going to have to do something digital. That's what the Great Reset predicts anyway after the Great Reset is reset. But you look at all the plates spinning right now, and I'm still, I honestly, I'm still kind of, you know, scratching my head over how this is all going to settle. And is one of these plates going to fall off and crack on the ground? Or are they going to try and spin some more plates at the same time? But right now, those three, those three issues are huge on a global basis. They're, they're affecting the entire planet. And you scratch your head and wonder, okay, how can a little thing in Ukraine make all this big ripple across the whole planet? And does this fit into the, the plans on the Great Reset? And what could be, you know, what could be the motive? What could be behind this strategy to take down the world economic system? Because right now it seems to be working. And you think back to the to the enormity of the whole thing. I remember, well, I wasn't there, but I mean, I remember uh, historically that the Ukraine is where the Holodomor took place yeah. at the hands of Russia. They went and they stole the means of production from the farmers, and the farmers, millions and millions of them, starved to death in one year because they took away the means of production, the, the harvesters, the planters, the, the tractors, the fuel, the seed. They stole it all. And the whole swath of society just died on the spot. You say, wow, these people are ruthless, whoever they are. They're, they're, they can be ruthless. And you say, well, is something ruthless going on right now? And is possibly, is Ukraine really just a prop for all these other things taking place right now? And I can't fully answer that question. But I do know, of course, that the U.S. was horribly involved in Ukraine for a number of years, a seedbed of corruption as far as I'm concerned. If, if Hunter Biden wants to play there, all the time you know there's something wrong going on it's just you know he's the, the 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 scum of business dealings and so you know you see all these other people that have had an interest from america that are meddling with what's going on over there and you say it's the story may never fully come out but something's really rotten in denmark and it isn't in denmark it's in ukraine i mean there, there, there is co cooperation going on now there's, there, there is cooperation in my view. I mean, if you look at, um, uh, you know, the, the the fact that there's still oil trade going on, the the, the the Gazprom sleight of hand by enabling, well, the Hungarian prime minister says at least ten countries to carry on with the with the gas trade in Europe, and then there's the point that the EU have stated that they are going to transition to this new right so this is this is a global thing anyway but the eu are saying that you know due to the due to what's happening we need to step up our efforts to transition to new energy sources that now they're talking about coal using coal <laughs> in in the meantime but where are they going to get the coal from probably russia now the but the point is in order to make that transition the they need to keep enough energy 
at the moment to, to be able to make that transition. They need to make a big infrastructure. If they're going to say use LNG, they make, you need to have a massive infrastructure investment program and construction program. Well, that's going to take years. So who's going to supply them the energy in the meantime? They haven't got the terminal capacity and they haven't got the storage capacity to just switch to American LNG. So this is going to take uh, many, many years. In the meantime, Russia, who economically speaking, have now got new markets opening up with China and India and, well, the BRICS, basically. They've got these new markets opened up. They no longer need the European market to the extent that they once did. So in order for the EU to make this transition to this new system, this potentially LNG-based system from American production, Russia's got to help them. Russia's got to keep, Russia has got to maintain their energy for that period, or it doesn't, in which case then we are talking about a humanitarian tragedy of immense proportions in Europe. Well, I think it's interesting, too, that a lot of the places in the West that have been greatly impacted by this have been the countries that have had um, in larger resistance, I guess you could say, to um, the designs of their government as it relates to the Great Reset. So what better way to get those portions of the populace um, under control than to have them uh, desperate, uh, hungry, cold? Uh, in in the upcoming winter, I think if they you know blame it all on on you know a convenient boogeyman, um, you know they'll have a much more compliant population that won't be asking questions like "Is this good for us?" or anything like that. They'll just want to have food in their bellies and things like that. At least I think maybe the central, uh, the the elite, the central planners, whatever that are sort of looking at all of this may uh, see opportunities at least in certain parts of of the West for a, a squeeze of that nature uh, to sort of force compliance as they introduce, uh, you know, socioeconomic changes that are massive in scope and would normally under, you know, normal circumstances, circumstances with full bellies and heated homes. So I think we already sort of went over um, the next question, which is about the main impacts of the war and its um, effects on the West versus uh, Eurasia. I think it's pretty clear to most people at this point that it's obviously been a much I, bigger boon. Uh, mm -hmm. I would like to add just one last thing to that. It's sure. just interesting from a geopolitical like perspective that the impact of the pandemic's um, lockdowns, which were meant to control the pandemic, was to have a hugely detrimental impact on the economies, mainly of, of Western Europe and America. And then the impact of the war was to do almost exactly the same thing. I just think you have to be having an awful lot of faith and coincidence to simply dismiss that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You remember when um, <clears throat> when Klaus Schwab said uh, that the pandemic represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world. Um, a, a bold statement. Uh, I, he has an overactive imagination, I'm sure. <clears throat> but that was, I don't know, that was a cu couple of years ago, I think, when he really said that. And I did a presentation. In which I um, I made up a, a slide on ways to destroy capitalism because I figured that's what the goal is here is to destroy capitalism. So I I just kind of brainstormed with myself, and I thought how if you want to destroy capitalism from his point of view, what would you do? And here are the th I wrote down nine things just off the top of my head. Number one was withdraw energy. Number two is withdraw resources. Number three is corrupt the supply chain. Number four is withdraw labor. 
Number five is withdraw financing and capital, which has certainly been done. Next is limit consumption, uh, like through inflation now, whatever. Limit innovation, that is, you know, new ideas and stuff. Create cataclysmic event. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that maybe, I don't know, maybe that's Ukraine. And then the, the, the last one, which is really important, is create malinvestment or disinvestment. And I know, Catherine, I know you can address this, but anytime money is diverted into places where it doesn't belong, all hell breaks loose. That, that's right. what's happened in the past. And right. that's and, what's happening right now. And what's very interesting, one of the things we're seeing is malinvestment as a way to take the people who would normally protect society and get them off on a tangent and engaged. You know, so you pump and dump this, you pump and dump that. And, and you literally drag them off into a rabbit hole. And, and it's been a brilliant marketing plan. They've been able to pump and dump some of the most potentially difficult people who could really stop them from doing what they're doing. And so they've done a masterful job of controlling the opposition and with financial incentives. And, yeah. and it's huge. I've never seen malinvestment like this before. Yeah, I haven't either. I agree. Yeah. Totally. There's, in addition to the currency question, there's another question I'm dying to ask Whitney. Can I do that? Yeah, of course. I don't want to interrupt your flow. No, so everyone here has a really powerful role in what I would describe as new media. And one of the things I've thought a lot about is the fact that the, the, G, the populations in the G7 country have grown up in a world where the narratives are oversimplistic you know, and increasingly fake. So they have all these false frameworks and these false maps, and it's kind of a dumbed down official narrative. If you leave that world and you go to China, you go to Russia, you go, you enter into a world that is much more dealing with complexity. And the way Farrell used to always, Dr. Farrell used to always talk about it, he said in America, the music is has the drum beat it's got one track you know in europe you're listening to volvaldi it has 24 tracks but but the g7 populations have been in this over simplistic narrative and really aren't prepared to deal with the complexity of the real world and yet each one of you has a significant role in the media helping them make that migration so I'm curious what you think about how the G7 populations are going to leave, you know, the Minnie and Mickey behind and go into the real world. Um, there's a lot of different ways that can play out. And I don't think it's going to be the same for everyone, because I think there's different segments of the population of each country that are going to react differently. Um, you know, for example, uh, years ago, um, I, I tried to talk about people, other people my age about stuff that I write about now. Um, and a lot of people just were like, I hear what you're saying. I hear the facts, uh, but I don't want to readjust my worldview because it's too scary to think that things are, are on that level in terms of like corruption and you know, an elite agenda and all of this stuff. So I think there's going to be people that um, are going to have make that reckon with that. 
Um, cause people don't like being lied to either. So there may be people that are too scared to recognize that there's people too, uh, who may be too, I don't know, arrogant or, or full of pride to admit they've been duped for X number of years. Uh, and then there's people that are like, I don't want to live in this world that's being foisted upon us, uh, and, uh, you know, are going to respond, uh, accordingly. But I think it's kind of unpredictable, uh, how many people are going to fall into each camp of that. Uh, and, you know, I can't really like say like this percent and that percent, you know, I can't really quantify that. But I think there's going to be, uh, you know, different responses. But I think, you know, when people are confronted with those facts and having to look at the situation as it is, uh, the less alone they feel and in, in having in, uh, in terms of like knowing people that have a different worldview than what they've been told their whole lives helps. You know, people that feel like they're the only one. I sort of felt like that when I sort of looked into all this stuff when I was in college and university. And I was like, I am literally the only one that thinks this. <laughs> like, that's how I felt. And it was like, it can be really lonely and scary for some people. I already was like weird at the university I, I went to. So it was fine. But, <laughs> you know, for some people, it's like not. Um, so it. Uh, I think the less alone people can feel, you know, the more supportive people can be when they're like talking to people about this stuff. Yeah. Uh, talking about people who like consume uh, the media we and, and others generate. I think that's uh, helpful in helping people, uh, you know, make those steps. Cause otherwise, you know, if they feel really isolated and, and, you know, fear can take over, I guess. And it's less likely to, if they feel like, you know, there's a, a lot of other people that feel the same way. Maybe. I don't know if anyone else uh, agrees with that or some... not. That's that's very true. I mean, one of the most common comments we get on all of our articles and have done since the beginning of COVID is, I'm so glad I read this. I felt like I was the only person that thought this way. It's very powerful for people to not feel like they're in like a minority of one. Um, I think I would also say, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Um, in terms of what people will do in the Western world, I think we've already seen a glimpse of that. I think there's been a, certainly a rise in the UK, which is not at all like a, doesn't have any kind of libertarian history like America does. There's been a rise of like individualist thinking, a rise of simply disengaging. I will grow my own food and run my own business. I will bank as little as possible. These are things that people I knew didn't talk about a few years ago. Um, but that, that rise is coming to the point where you can sort of say, well, people will sense the game is rigged and simply decide not to play, I hope. Right. Um, and one thing that the other editor of Guardian, Kat, always says is that people generally will believe what they're told until it becomes much easier not to. And people might play along, but eventually when they're cold and hungry, playing along will lose its appeal and will become easier to rebel than it is to keep on going. Yeah, I think it's unmistakable right now that there is a movement worldwide uh, it, it's spontaneous. It's not organized by anybody, but I, I see the movement towards uh, towards people kind of trying to create a, a parallel economic system. That's what you're describing, like you know, get together in a food co-op or you know, have some other thing that you're doing locally with people in your community. I think we're going to see more and more of that come. It's just it's a necessity. It's not uh, it, it's not even a philosophical position. You want to live. You want to get along. You get together with your your friends and neighbors and stuff, and you, you work stuff out. I think we're going to see more of that. When, when, when I was uh, researching, studying um, the, the first implications of Agenda 21 and the Biodiversity Convention, just looking at the implications if they actually did what they said they were going to do, 
to curtail all the things, economic activity, like getting rid of cars and, you know, going back to walking communities, that sort of thing. Where would that take us economically? Well, <clears throat> um, the, the, what we came up with, and I don't know if it's true today, but what I came up with back then was it would put us back somewhere around 1850 in terms of economic convenience. That was not really a, a good time in the world. I mean, people survived, they lived, they had lives, and they, a lot of them died younger than they die today. But, um, you know, people did get along. Um, but nobody today would really think that that would be a good lifestyle to go back to. And yet, the people that are, that are creating the, the economic communities now, the, the kind of the parallel, you know, let's get out of that system and quit listening to the man and we'll go over here and do our own thing. Um, that's kind of the, 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 the structure they're moving into is kind of back, you know, the, what people did back in 1850, like water purifiers and, you know, worrying about ways to just grow enough food to survive, uh, not don't worry about steaks on the table. Just worry about enough carrots in the ground to be able to pull and get some nourishment. Um, <clears throat> how are you going to, how are you going to get clothes? How are you going to make clothes? Can, you know, do, do you stock up on fabric and get a sewing machine and be prepared to make your own food? Well, that's what they did back in 1850. We're kind of headed towards that era again, where those people who realize they need to pull out and, and go do something different and they will be the outliers, but, uh, for sure. But, um, it, it's a very difficult time ahead of us. Very difficult time. If people, if people want to survive, they're going to have to take up that mentality to some extent. And they're going to have to be willing to sacrifice a lot of conveniences in life that they've known for all these years, for all their life. Uh, they're going to have to figure, well, we're just going to have to go back to, to another era and, and live and worry about survival, worry about living, worry about raising our family, taking care of our, our loved ones and stuff like that, defending ourselves. Right. Um, there's the other aspect of that too, that will drive more people to it. And that's war. Uh, I think war is going to, going to become a normal thing on planet earth, more likely than not. And, um, um, <clears throat> you know, the, the old saying where, where goods don't flow, soldiers will, is still true today. I think that's part of what we see in Ukraine right now. When goods don't flow, <laughs> you, you, all hell's going to break loose. And this is kind of going on all over the planet right now. Stuff isn't flowing. So likely, you know, people are going to get very angry before this is done. You know, why aren't the, why isn't there why isn't there seed in that ground over there? That farm has been operating for fifty years. Why aren't why aren't there crops growing in that? People can get really ticked off. I can see a lot of conflict coming. So you know, again, back to the old Wild West, uh, every family had to defend itself <laughs> against robbers and you know marauders or whatever forces were were out there trying to do them in. So, Patrick, it looks to me like there's a real effort to get the U.S. to break up and get states to secede. Do you see that? You're in the United Absolutely. States. Absolutely. Okay. I'm, I've been in touch, actually, a pretty, pretty good friend, a guy who's working on New California, uh, which is a breakaway. Uh, hopefully, they think it's going to be a breakaway from California. And uh, <clears throat> they've got many counties signed up now to, uh, to, go, to go with the program. Right. And there's other states that are pursuing the same thing, not only breaking away from the state under our federal government, but just totally seceding altogether right. <laughs> from, from the U.S. Uh, it's just an element, uh, elemental stage right now. But you can see that there's a lot of sentiment that says, hey, we're so sick and tired of this. We just don't want anything to do with it anymore. Well, we'll but back to, back to global investment capital, if you're global investment capital and you want to get out of the liabilities and the retirement obligations, 
you can have the state secede and blame it on the people. And you're out of the liabilities. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. I think one of the biggest risks in America today, I don't know why I'm bringing this up, but one of the biggest risks in America today is the government, <clears throat> the government now, federal government with no constitutional uh, authority to do so, owns something like 350 million acres right. of land in America. I mean, it's just huge. It's like 28% of our land mass is owned by the federal government. Yeah. The big risk at this point is, I think. They auction it off. What will they do in the end? Uh, will they auction it off? Will they sell it? Will they trade it for some sort of a, uh, you know, a, a digital currency plan for backing? I mean, I'd have no idea what to do with it, but I don't like the fact that they own, that the federal government owns that much of our property out here mm -hmm. where we live. And the West is, is more more so than well, the they East. Take, well, right, they take the, the position under the, under the financial arrangements that in fact they own everything if they have to, to pay the debt. Yeah. Yes. Well, to, to go back to what happened with Argentina in 2001, after their economy collapsed, there was a major effort to get them to trade uh, land. Uh, most of Southern Argentina actually uh, in exchange for an, uh, a, a forgiveness of their debt, a debt for that's land right. swap, that's they were right. calling it. So that's exactly. definitely like not unprecedented. And you could easily argue that that 2001 economic collapse was really uh, engineered by the people that were put in as the economists and stuff in the early nineties and throughout uh, Argentina and the, in, in, in that whole, you know, decade that preceded it, it was kind of like a, an engineered uh, collapse. Right. And if you look at this as an engineered demolition of, of the U S economy or the Western economy in general, it's, it, it's definitely a, a very right. uh, definite possibility that something like that so, could happen. Who would it go to? I guess that's a, I'm looking to assert, I don't know, Patrick, if you got our taxation, our latest taxation wrap-up, I think I sent it to both you and Whitney, um, but I'm looking to assert a, a common law right of offset of $21 trillion against the central banks. <laughs> yeah. Think of it as a land protection. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow. Well, they've we stolen, I mean, they were depository, they're legally liable, they've stolen $21 trillion that we can prove and document. Yeah. I so. So the, the, yeah, so the bankers can't necessarily grab all the land. No, they can't. But you know, the, the, the debt for debt for, uh, for land swaps, uh, right. <clears throat> were done. The, the land ended up in the control of the United Nations, mostly through right. the world bank and through the BIS, the, the land, the control of the land, the management of the land, put it that way, ended up in the hands of the United Nations and they passed it out to some NGOs and stuff in some cases to manage, manage the land. But the countries where the land existed didn't get the right to do anything on it. They lost all their development rights, and all their, their mining, mineral, everything else rights uh, for the land. And often the, the, the land that was taken was the best land they had to offer. Uh, no wonder they were mad at us for so many years. You know, we just, we just absolutely, why well, say we, the, you know, these, these, these banksters and the, you know, the global banksters and stuff absolutely raped these countries, just pillaged and plundered. And it's no wonder they got mad. I, but now we're in the same position because if, if, if 28% of our country all of a sudden goes to the United Nations and, and you say, well, okay, if, if resource grabbing was the plan in the first place, gee, how'd that work out? <laughs> they just, they just grabbed a third of our country and now it's not ours anymore. And you know, they're going to use it for whatever. But part of the, part of the sequestering of resources is just somebody, you mentioned specter along the way. I, I'm an old James Bond fan, of course. 
Um, you remember Goldfinger? Right. Goldfinger, everybody thought in the plot he's going to rob Fort Knox and take all the gold. That would have been a great plan, right? But you'd have to have a lot of trucks to get the gold out. You learn then, no, that's not the idea. He bought up all the free market gold that was out there he could get his hands on. And he was going to blow up an atomic device inside of Fort Knox so irradiate the gold so that nobody would touch it for the next 500 years. That would make him filthy, stinking rich, and he'd control the world. Well, this is exactly what's going on when the United Nations takes millions and millions of acres of prime resource acres and takes them offline where nobody could touch them. All of a sudden, the remaining resources that are out there go through the roof. Right. I and think they, what you're talking about... <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, well, they don't have to control the whole thing. That's all I'm saying. They take when they take something out of production, the stuff that remains in their control all of a sudden is worth everything, and that's where people are getting their resources from. Are you probably right. So if you own the synthetic food companies and you take down the agriculture and the ranching, yeah, yeah. yeah I was I was about 40. to say that that under the guise of climate change, it's very likely that a lot of uh, land, not just in the in the U.S. but really in uh, any number of countries, is going to be taken out of agricultural use because of concerns about uh, mm -hmm. carbon footprints. They're already whatnot. doing that in the U.S. They're yeah. having the um, yes. the conservation fund paying farmers not to farm let their land go wild again. Exactly. Apparently for the environment. Exactly. So that, I am, I am proud to announce that the EU has accepted both yachts and corporate jets from the from the from all of these requirements. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, funny how that works, huh? Let's all band together and buy a private jet. What do you say? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, any other thoughts before we conclude um, about the you know, the east west dichotomy? Um, the last question I had, I mean, I, I don't know if you, you all want to have like any concluding thoughts related to it, but the last question I had was um, it, whether the East-West dichotomy is, uh, it, we must pick a side, uh, whether it's uh, entirely false or somewhere in the middle. Um, could, maybe we could briefly discuss that before uh, closing out. I, I would say, um, this is just a point of principle, I don't pick a side like left or right, east or west. I just, I don't see any benefit in pledging allegiance to anything like without some kind of reservation of judgment. I just think that's sound policy. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I think it's fair to say that yeah. over the course of this discussion, we've, we've described yeah. that dichotomy as existing at some levels, but overall is mostly, it's mostly transnational in scope. Right, so it's hard to make a dichotomy out of something that's ultimately driven by transnational uh, interests that don't, you know, exist. Just, you know, extend to the east and to the west, not just one or the other. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I, I would say that you know we basically, if you ask the average human being anywhere on this planet if they want to invade another country. They want to steal another country's resources. They want to even want to harm their neighbor. The vast, vast majority, absent, absent the kind of influence that are put on them by, you know, other other people. But most people just want to live a, a good life. They want to raise their families. They just want to be, and most people I think are decent. So if we're gonna take a side, I think we should just take the side of each other. And we should just yeah. put, a, put aside. The fact that there are massive, 
global corporations and financial institutions and political you know institutions that want to divide us so the the answer to the to respond to that is that we shouldn't be divided and we shouldn't go around blaming other people for our problems we have to take responsibility for them yeah perfect that's exactly right we need to reconnect again and covid drove people apart drove families apart society apart and stuff if there was ever a time that we needed to get back in touch with each other and literally (laughs) face to face touching hugging whatever uh you know dealing with real people if there's any encouragement to this you know i remember when the lights went out in new york city i wasn't there but i remember reading about it it was years ago and everything went down in new york city and People outside of New York City says, oh, my gosh, it's going to be the end of New York City. There's going to be anarchy, chaos, killing. You know, it's just going to be a it's going to be a dystopian movie like Blade Runner or something. But, you know, the interesting thing that happened, the lights went out. But all of a sudden at night, there was no air conditioning, nothing. People came out in the streets. They had no other place to go. They just hot in their apartment. They walked out in the streets and they said, gee, there's there's other people here. And all of a sudden they started hugging each other. They started talking with each other and helping each other and taking care of each other. And there was a, one of the biggest love fest America's ever seen. And then unfortunately the lights came back on and they all went back to where they started. But it emphasizes what you're talking about. This part, possibly one of the best thing that happened in some cities would be if the lights go out, people go out in the street and say, gee, I have neighbors. Who's that guy down the street? I've never met him. I, what's he all about? Uh, we need to get back in touch with each other again in, in small groups, maybe large groups, but at least in small groups and stuff. And that is so important, especially in America. That's one reason I'm, I'm really just pushing free uh, citizens for free speech in America right now as a nonprofit organization trying to do just that, to get people connected again. And you remember the Ron Paul revolution? I know you remember it, Catherine. Uh, you, mm-hmm. you guys from Great Bread probably won't, but the Ron Paul revolution years ago when he when he ran for president was fueled and almost successful by the, the concept of meetups. And meetups were held all over the country spontaneously. Young people said, hey, let's meet in the park. 25, 30 people would show up. Sometimes 100 would show up. Uh, hey, bring a bring a picnic or something. You know, come to come to the park. We're just going to talk about stuff, and people would just spontaneously show up all over the country. And they were they were laughing and they were drinking and they were hugging and you know they having changing stories and and it was a lightning rod for his campaign. And the concept of meetups would have the same effect today if if people started getting together again. Just even if it's just informally, it would it could transform a lot of what's taking place today. But you just cannot ignore people when real people meet other real people. That's when that's when the activism really takes root and really starts to be meaningful in a local community, and then it percolates up from there. Yeah. So I would just add, I agree with everything that's been said, but what I see, and I see it happening in every country is a division between those who want to embrace a future which I would describe as inhuman and those who want to embrace a human yes. culture. Yes, And exactly. the divide, you can't describe the divide as right or left or this country versus that country. You know, it comes down to what's in the hearts of each human. And what we have to do is we have to support and nurture the people who who want a human future and we have to withdraw our support and and shun the people who want an inhuman future 
Yes. And unfortunately, yeah. a small group of people who are dedicated to an inhuman future have gotten way too much control of the global financial system. And we're going to have to grapple with that. But, you know, ultimately, I've always believed they're going to lose because they are um, they are so out of alignment with, you know, the fundamental laws of science, nature and even economics. So mm -hmm. I just think we have to, in every way possible, embrace the human. And I have to say, it's always fun to get together with a group of people who do that all the time. <laughs> and get to meet some of you or get to talk to some of you. So I've really enjoyed this. Well, that, that's a really great point, Catherine, because I think, um, well, I haven't been as involved with like, you know, the stuff I normally do because I have a huge book project, but I have seen just a huge uptick in, in news stories that are like insanely promoting the inhuman, you know, promoting a, right. you will have virtual children, Tamagotchi <laughs> children, no more actual children. Oh, uh, for you. you can know, I take you my can... favorite? Yesterday, I don't sure. know. The, the British among <laughs> us probably saw this, but they had a long list of all the adverse events from the injections and attributed them to masturbation. It was in the Daily Mail. I don't know if you guys saw it. It was hysterical. It was the funniest thing I've ever they, they've had a list of, of them that are pretty funny, like uh, making yeah. your bed too strenuously. Um, sitting, sitting up too quickly, oh, um, yeah. you know, there's, there's like a, I think there, I forget who someone's been compiling oh. a list of now, now it's of just, of, uh, of course, now it's just spontaneous adult death syndrome. Yeah. Even yeah. You, just, you just drop it. <laughs> there was a great book, uh, written a few years ago by Wesley C. Smith of Discovery Institute. It was called the war on humans and it was very good. Um, I thought at the time. Uh, because it very succinctly described the war on humans and consequently humanity and civilization. But um, <clears throat> this war, this is what we're just kind of discussing here. There is a war going on, and it's again, it's not just in a general war in, like in the Ukraine or whatever. It's a war against humanity, against humans, human nature, human, human virtue, human dignity. And this is where this is where the the real rebellion and resistance needs to take place. I think mm -hmm. that's what we just said. Bye. All right. So I guess with that, uh, we'll close out. So thank you all for being here and participating. Can uh, you let everyone know? I mentioned uh, your websites at the beginning, but let everyone know where they can uh, find you uh, on online. So we'll start with uh, Catherine and just go. Solari.com. Solari.com. Kit. Where can uh, people yeah, you find can you? find Off Guardian, like you said, off-guardian.org and um, on Twitter at Off Guardian Zero and I personally on Twitter at Kit underscore Nightly and we have a Telegram channel which is where you're most likely to get updates and I never ever remember what the app is but I will <laughs> send okay. the You can just search notes. for Off Guardian on Telegram and it'll <laughs> yeah, come up we'll as up. a channel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Patrick? Yeah, technocracy.news for me and uh, possibly citizensforfreespeech.org. We're trying to promote free speech in America. And we learned that's a universal concept, though. Free speech is uh, something in the heart of man everywhere in every, in every country on, on the planet. Okay, Ian? Uh, it's inthistogether.com. It's in dash or hyphen this hyphen together.com. 
Um, but hopefully I'm moving over to a new domain soon because nobody can remember that one. So I'll move it. Yeah, too many hyphens. Too many hyphens. You, you went off Guardian with your hyphens. Oh, yeah, no. I, I don't know what that was about. We, um, it's a long story. <laughs> All right. Uh, and as for me, uh, you know, you can find my stuff on Unlimited Hangout also on, on Twitter and 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 Telegram for now. But um, a lot of this um, that we've been talking about, you know, central centralized power, a lot of the stuff, uh, the censorship's really bad. And, and in keeping with what we were saying at the end, I think a lot of uh, the ability to distribute uh, what Catherine earlier called new media is going to end up being uh, local. So, you know, and for people watching this, maybe consider in your local community thinking about a non-big tech dependent way to distribute news that you think is important to people understanding what's going on in your local community uh, so that if, you know, big tech decides to, uh, you know, flip the switch um, because, you know, Telegram is an alternative, but it's not necessarily uh, safe. Yeah. You know, none yeah. of these platforms really are. So we need yeah. to try so and think about that as well. Your book. Oh, my book? Oh, oh well, uh, now that you have, no, sorry. Uh, but you can order it directly from the uh, the publisher, which is Trine Day, T-R-I-N-E uh, Day. And um, you'll get the book more quickly if you order it from them. But it's also available on Amazon and other places where, where books are sold at, uh, via pre-order. Um, but there was a delay because of the supply chain. Uh, it's not my fault this time. Uh, for people that, that know it was delayed previously because I had a really, uh, I ended up having a high-risk pregnancy and couldn't work on it. Because as you will see, it's a very detailed, vol voluminous book. And my regular online work, imagine that in book form. That's basically what it is. So it was hard to do. So, um, but this time it's not my fault. It's uh, their fault now. Uh, it's so all right. It, it'll be there soon. I know we can pre-order it now, but when is it expected to be released? You know. Okay, so now it, it, because of the supply chain stuff, it's supposed to be September, like mid-ish uh, September. Cool. But review copies to people will be going uh, out before, and I'll be doing interviews about it um, before okay. then. Yeah, yeah, but the, uh, the that'll be that. So uh, you can look for that as well. It's about uh, a lot more than just Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, he's sort of my my vehicle for exploring a, a large web of corruption in the U.S. and abroad. How exciting! Anyway, <laughs> uh, um, so anyway, I, um, I hate to be a, a stickler for details, but you never actually said what the book was called. Oh, One Nation Under Blackmail uh, is right. the is the title. So mm -hmm. nice, excellent title. Thanks. <laughs> All right. So uh, thanks everyone, and uh, thank thanks everyone for watching. Uh, and uh, please uh, share this video uh, as widely as you'd like to help us overcome the aforementioned uh, tech censorship. And thanks again to all our panelists for participating. Thank you, Whitney. Thank yeah, you thank you, well. Whitney. Great job. Thank you for pulling it together. <laughs>